The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. If you can hear my voice, you could find your way back to your seats. We'll begin our study of God's Word this morning. Uh, there are Bibles in the seats around you. If you need a Bible, uh, feel free to grab that and use that today. Otherwise, please open your copy of God's Word to the book of Job. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning and the privilege to gather as a body to hear and sing and receive the truth of the gospel of Christ, to study your word, to be moved in fellowship and by the Spirit, to walk in unity together. We pray, Lord, for this time now as we spend exploring the the deep and wondrous mysteries of your love towards us in Christ as we look to the book of Job this morning. We ask that by your Spirit our, our hearts and minds would be open and illuminated to the text, that we may walk faithfully in light of it, obediently to its commands, that we would receive, God, your words of warning and encouragement, that we would see, most importantly, God, the clarity of the gospel from it, and we'd be led to worship you. Lord, we are here this morning with many different distractions and burdens, and I pray, God, that through the course, if not having already begun this service, Lord, we would begin to feel those burdens loosened at the foot of the cross. And so I ask, as always, Lord, that you would guide our time. We pray for those who are not here because they are sick, because they're taking care of loved ones, because their jobs have required them to to be absent today. We pray that they would be encouraged by your Spirit. They would find time to study and to pray. And uh, that, Lord, they would be Uh, felt and missed this morning by us. And we pray that those who are not here for sin and neglect would be confronted by your Spirit and would be drawn again to you and to the fellowship of your church. We're so thankful for the work that you're doing in our lives and in the city. We prayed for continued growth and grace. As always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you haven't already, open your copy of God's Word to the book of Job. This summer we begin or really resume a larger series that we've uh, been working through over the last couple years and that's really just a cursory glance through every book of the Bible beginning from Genesis. We made our way through the first five books called the Pentateuch in the Bible and then two summers ago we walked through the historical narratives that outlined the life and the rise and ultimately the fall of Israel and of Judah. We're going to turn our attention over the next 10 weeks to the wisdom literature here, beginning with the book of Job, and then to the major prophets, which follow the wisdom literature. And we do this one book at a time, one sermon at a time. And these sermons over the next 10 weeks will be really overview sermons, high-level sermons. So typically, you know, our diet here is to spend time in one book, preaching expositionally 
passage by passage, verse by verse. But these sermons or the next week will be slightly different in that we're going to take a 30,000, maybe 50,000 foot view and come down every once in a while to spend some time in the details. But we're looking primarily at the themes and the gospel motifs that exist in these Old Testament narratives and in these wisdom literatures and in the prophets in the hopes that we would have a better grasp and understanding of our Bible as a whole. So it's, it's often helpful to get into the weeds and study the book and its parts and to become fluent in a language, let's say, of Genesis or of Exodus. But it's also helpful at times to take that larger view, that higher level view, to see what God is doing uh, at, a, at a bigger picture. And that's what we'll do in the series of overview sermons over the next 10 weeks. We're going to begin in the book of Job. And these next five books, Job to Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, uh, are really the, the, the wisdom of God distilled for God's people to use and to live. Now, all of God's Word is to be used profitably for teaching and for correction, reproof, for edification. But books like Job and Psalms, Proverbs, th- those kinds of books are often especially useful to Christians because they distill some of the greatest life lessons that the Bible has to offer. And they lead us, although they have very different uh, sort of motifs and very simple principles, they often lead us to worship God in unique and refreshing ways than simply Israel's histories might or even studying the Gospels would. All Scripture, of course, leads us to that end, but many of us love the wisdom literatures, the Psalms and the Proverbs because they speak to us in a language that's a little bit more familiar to us than, say, the prophets might. So we're going to look at the biblical wisdom literature uh, over the next three to four weeks here. Now, what is biblical wisdom? That's really at the heart of the, of the series here. What is biblical wisdom? Now, many of us have an understanding, I think, of what wisdom means. And generally, we may say something like, wisdom is knowledge applied, or some other pithy statement like that. But what does is, what is biblical wisdom really teach us? What does it mean to possess biblical wisdom, to grow in biblical wisdom, to be, as a Christian, truly wise. Well, in the Bible, wisdom often relates to what you gain, yes, in knowledge, but ultimately in intimacy and experience in the Lord. So what biblical wisdom really does when we learn and we grow in wisdom through the Bible, we're not simply gaining knowledge and cute sayings to apply to business transactions or financial dealings, but we're learning what God's biblical order really looks like so that we would faithfully live in it, in alignment with God's order. So books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, they clarify for us God's good order of the world. You know that God created the world, and He created it both for a purpose and with order. And certain things happen because God created them to happen that way. Even the natural order of things, things like gravity, the things we can observe in nature, the way that reality generally works, even non-Christians can see and observe some of these same principles and truths. That's what we call wisdom as observed in God's created order. But biblical wisdom takes us to the Bible and gives us a reason why that order is there and how we can understand it to be good. If it comes from God, it is good. And so biblical wisdom, like the book of Job and Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, clarify for us God's order 
of the world around us. It helps us make sense of the world around us. It helps us make sense of our own lives, of our own hearts. It helps us make sense of our communities, of why things may happen in a particular way. It helps us understand the outcomes when we work diligently or when we fail to exercise prudent wisdom at times. But more than that, us to live in light of those principles of God's created order. So it draws our attention to what is clearly true in God's wisdom and in God's created order and then gives us instruction about how we live in light of that order, you see. So if we observe, for instance, by God's word and in uh, our natural order of things, we see that the godly seem to prosper when they are faithful in the midst of suffering, then we are called and instructed to live faithfully in the midst of that suffering in particular ways. So godly and biblical wisdom instructs us to live in light of the principles of God's creator order as we observe them in the world around us. And so we turn our attention then first to Job. A little background on Job. Job is an ancient book. It's really written mostly in poetry, which is why you'll see as you read along that there are uh, unique phrases and the wording and the spacing in your Bibles is different than, let's say, in the very beginning of Job or the end of Job, which is really largely written in prose. But this is a kind of ancient poetry about a man named Job and Job is not a Hebrew. He's, he's not an Israelite. He's comes from the land of Uz, which is outside of Israel. And all of his friends and the characters we run into in the book of Job are not Israelites as we understand and know them from the rest of the Old Testament. And yet this is in the Bible because what we see principled in Job and in his life and the lessons that Job learns and that are taught and instructed for us lead us to the same truth that all the rest of God's word teaches us that God's wisdom stands above the wisdom of the world. So Job exists to teach us that God's wisdom is above our own and God's wisdom stands above the wisdoms of the age. In fact, as we interact with the rest of Job's counterparts, his friends who come to comfort him and give him some wisdom, we see ultimately that wisdom falls short. Why? Because those wisdom offered by his friends are steeped in the wisdom of the culture and the age and are not truly reflective of God's wisdom. So again, if the goal of biblical wisdom is to align ourselves with God's created order, Job reveals for us that God's created order and wisdom comes to us from above, not from below. We do not see the wisdom of the age or the world around us as true knowledge, but only which God reveals through His Word and in His good and common grace. Of course, the most famous sort of theme of Job, if you've read the Bible through, have heard about Job, is typically suffering. Job goes through a great deal of suffering in this book. And so rightly, the questions around suffering, why we suffer, what it looks like and means to suffer as God's disciple naturally occur. But Job, friends, listen, Job does not seek to answer the question of why we suffer. That's an important thing to realize. If you begin reading the book of Job, you see the suffering of Job, and you wonder, well, why is this happening? And even some of the questions are asked and the conversations revolve around why it might be happening. The book of Job never gives an answer to it because it was not written for that. It does not give an answer to the question, why do we suffer? Rather, the question it asks and that it answers for us is, how should we suffer? When things are difficult, when things go sideways, when our plans go wrong, 
What does it look like to deal with that hardship, that loss, that suffering in a way that honors God and that conforms to His wisdom and His ways rather than the wisdom of the age? So it does not concern itself with the answer to why we suffer, but rather how we should suffer. Of course, the answer to how we should suffer is less about the suffering at that point and then more about the sufferer. It's less about the circumstances and more about the content of our faith. And so that will be the focus that we'll pull into as we give this overview of Job. Another word as we begin, we will not be reading the entire book of Job here. We'll spend some time in various parts, but it would be wise for you to keep your Bible open so that you can flip to the chapters as we go. I want to begin then just by giving you this summary of the book itself, sort of the narrative overview of what takes place in the book of Job. And you can flip along as I go. I'll give uh, a couple chapter references so you can peruse as you listen. But then I want to draw your attention to a couple places as we do that along the way. First, consider there in the first two chapters, really this is the, the opening section of the book of Job. And this is really where we see both Job's advocate and an accuser that comes to Job. So notice in verse 1 it says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now this was probably in the patriarch days, maybe sometime in Abraham or even earlier. And so there wasn't quite the law or the understanding uh, other than what's written on the heart of man of what is right or evil. But here we see very clearly stated for us more than three times in this opening section that Job was a righteous man. He was upright. He was innocent or blameless before God, your translation might say. And by this we don't mean that Job was perfect or sinless. He confesses sin through the rest of the book. But here it says that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So notice the blamelessness and the uprightness of Job's heart and character is not because of any moral or work he does on his own, but it was because he was one who feared God and turned away from evil. So we're establishing that Job is a righteous man before God. Of course, he was also blessed. There were seven sons and three daughters, a great blessing indeed in those days. He was rich there in verse 3. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man, it says, was the greatest of all the people in the east. Later, Job, as he laments, begins to reminisce fondly about how he was respected when he walked into a room or through the market. People recognized him as a man of status and stature. And now he was relegated to suffering. And many people would turn his, their face from him. But here he's upright, blameless, righteous before God, and he's wealthy. He has children, and he has material wealth. It says in verse 4 that his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send an invite to the three sisters and eat and drink with them, so they would worship together. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For he said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And so thus Job did continually. So not only was he righteous, not only was he wealthy and blessed by God, but we see that he was very pious, that he was genuinely religious in the best sense of that word. He was faithful to God, both in his life and in his devotion in his worship. 
So this is sort of the portrait of Job, a man who, for all intents and purposes, does not deserve to suffer. So that sets really the framework for what happens just in the next few passages. We're transported to a sort of a heavenly court where God is now governing the affairs of the world, of the universe. And it says in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now Satan here, you might, you might know, is really a title, not Satan's actual name. It means accuser. So the accuser also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And he answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And he said, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What's happened here? We see that though Job has an accuser, he also has an advocate in God. The accuser, Satan, comes and says, I come to try to undermine your will. And God says, rather strangely, confusingly perhaps to us, but have you considered my servant Job? Now, I'm sure not many of you would like to be considered before Satan as God offers you up, so to speak. But one thing to keep in mind, and this is a bit of the irony of the book of Job, that while his friends try to figure out what vice Job has that made him suffer, we see that here before God it was really his virtue that caused him to be considered before the Lord. Now he says, have you considered my servant Job? And what's Satan's response? God, only, he only worships you because you've given him blessing. But if you took away his blessings, you took away his wealth, his happiness, and his prosperity, he would surely curse you to his face. And so God says, go ahead. You can't harm him, but his possessions are yours. So what does he do? Look at verse 13. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating, drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said that the oxen were plowing, the donkey were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them. This is another nation. Fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell upon from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And yet while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans have formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And talk about the wind being taken out from your sails. This is the worst possible news that any man could have received. Not only has all of his wealth and possessions now been taken away or dried up, but that very blessing of his own flesh and blood now has been robbed from him. His children have died. So this is his response in verse 20. 
And Job arose and tore his robe. He shaved his head. He, he, he went into mourning. And he fell on the ground. And he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is key. It says in verse 22, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So we're setting up what's going to take place in the rest of the book here. Is that Job, though righteous and blameless before God, by God's own sovereign providence and his own will, unbeknown to Job at the time, suffers great calamity. And though we see that at one sense it is Satan who has been given charge of his possessions, and in another sense it's these other nations or natural forces at play that take these possessions away, what we know from the scripture here is that it is God's will that these things take place. And Job intuitively picks up on this truth because he does not blame the Chaldeans, he does not blame the Sabians, he does not curse the wind that crushed the house upon his children. He worships God and says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. This is just to underscore the, the piety and the clear devotion of a man like Job. It says, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Well, Satan comes back and says, I'd like another crack at it, essentially. He's only still doing this because he's health, he's safe, he's comfort. He has all of these things. Now, you and I might agree with that. We may lose a lot in this life, but if we have our health, we can get by. Again, God says, then his health is in your hands. Only do not take his life. And so Satan then goes, and he strikes him with all sorts of boils. It says in verse 7 that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, we're not talking about chicken pox or a couple rashes of poison ivy. We're talking about boils and open wounds and sores. It says that Job will go and he'll scratch and scrape it off of his skin under some trees. So this is, this is nasty. This is real di- issues, ultimately, which could kill a man in these days. It says in verse 8 that he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes of his mourning. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Notice his wife's integrity and piety was not quite as diligent as her husband's. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God and not then receive evil? And again it says in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So though Job has an accuser which seeks to undermine God's goodness and integrity to show that God is not really worth worshiping unless he bribes his people with goodness, health, material possessions and blessing, God says that those who worship and follow me do so for more than what I give them. They do so because they know me. And so he puts forward his servant Job to be considered and tested Now, of course, this testing looks a lot like suffering. It looks a lot like a punishment. And this will be the ongoing question of, is God punishing Job? Why would he be punishing Job? His friends can't seem to understand why this would be happening. Job must have done something wrong. But we understand that it is God testing not only Job, but proving to Job's 
adversary and accuser, that Job is rooted deeply in a relationship with God which cannot and will not ultimately suffer harm. And it's not because Job himself is a man of great willpower or esteem that we see his character is upright and pious. We will see that it will be God who holds Job's faith firm through his trials. In verse, or chapter 3, then Job goes on, and he finally offers a prayer of lament or complaint to the Lord. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed God, or sorry, cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. He says, It would have been better if I was never born than to have suffered all of this. This is deep tragedy, deep loss. This isn't just a pious man who's dealing with some sort of emotions and loss. This is someone now who is fighting to find hope in a situation like this. Everything has been taken away from him. Even his friends have come, and they're so taken aback by what they see. Job is so covered in sores, they sit, and they don't say a word to him for a week. Now, many of us may think that's a good thing. It's someone who just sits and suffers silently with a friend. And indeed, in our own sort of modern understanding, it's sometimes helpful to come and not begin to give counsel or wisdom and simply to sit and to listen. But here I think they're mostly just confused. I think they're mostly treating Job as if he's already dead. In fact, the process for mourning those who died is silent mourning for a week. And so though Job's heart still beats, they sit next to him for a week and mourn what is essentially a corpse. And so he offers this lament. If all of it is taken away from him, he says, it would have been better if I had never been born. Curse the day of my birth. He says, verse 11, Why did I not die at birth or come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down to be quiet. I would have slept, and then I would have been at rest with kings and councils of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling where the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and great are there. The slave is free from his master. You can see that there's a great trouble and calamity now not just outside of his own life, but now takes place in his heart. And this is where the battle for the rest of the book begins, in the heart and mind of Job, as he seeks to understand why this is happening. He desires to go to be with the Lord, that his troubles would cease. Well, along come Job's friends, and they cease their silent suffering along with them, or rather their silent mockery. And they begin to try to comfort him after hearing this prayer and complaint before the Lord, feeling perhaps sorry for Job. They try to give maybe some theological reasons for why this must be happening. They comfort Job, and I use the word comforter, very loosely. And what follows really from chapters 4 to verse chapter 31 is a series of dialogue between these friends. We find Eliphaz, Bilad, and Zophar, and there comes another, Elihu, later. And these comforters go round for round with Job, and Job answers each one. 
but they begin to try to offer reasons. Now, turn to verse 17 of chapter 4. We see really this as sort of epitomizes really the comfort and the counsel they offer. Ultimately, this is Eliphaz who comes and offers this counsel. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? That's the central question in the heart of their counsel. This question really is asking, there's no way that you haven't done something wrong. Before the Lord, you must have sinned. Examine yourself, Job. Look back. What did you do wrong? How have you failed God? Where have you sinned? Surely God is punishing you. For no one can stand before God, and yet you claim to be righteous. No one can be pure before his maker, and yet you speak as if you have integrity. This is the same counsel that his friends offer, and some of them even come up with sort of elaborate hypothetical situations that Job must have done to deserve this from the hand of God. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Of course, the answer to that would be no. Can a man be pure before his maker? No. So Job, you must have done something wrong. And then there's a fourth man there. He's younger than the other three. He was silent during this whole debate going on because he didn't want to sort of disrespect his elders there. So in chapters 32 to 37, this young man named Elihu finally speaks up and he says, listen, I've been listening to this conversation the whole time and I have to say that you're both wrong. And Elihu's address basically is going to anticipate for us God's own answer and response back to Job, we'll see later. And what he says practically is that neither parties here are getting it. Job is not understanding or asking the right questions and his friends surely are getting it wrong. Instead of blaming Job... They are to be praising God. Rather than trying to seek why God might be punishing Job, they are to consider God and who he is. They are to turn their attentions to God and his praiseworthiness, not on whether or not God is punishing Job, if God is right to do so, or whether Job deserved this or not. So look in verse 10 of chapter 34, and we'll read a little bit of that. Again, this is going to to lay the groundwork for ultimately what God would speak. Chapter 34 and verse 10, we'll read through verse 30. I think it's worth speaking. He says, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. I think he says that tongue-in-cheek, but to be reverent, he must. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. Of a truth God will not do wickedly, And the Almighty would not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather himself, his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and a man would return to dust. So if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man? who shows no partiality to princes, nor regard to the rich more than to the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. It really says, listen, you're talking about God, sovereign and just of the universe. You're getting it all wrong. Go to chapter 36. Again, he continues, really for five chapters, uninterrupted he speaks. Chapter 36, look at verse 5. 
He says, ultimately, this is where you should be paying attention. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they ought to behave, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. And he goes on. It is to praise God for his righteousness and his uprightness that he is perfect and just in all his dealings. And so it is not that God is simply punishing Job for no reason. God is faithful to all of his promises and that he is giving himself to the affairs and concerns of his people. Therefore, Elihu is addressing his friends and Job to turn his attention to God himself rather than in circumstances. And then God responds. Job really pleads that God would simply just visit him, and in a kind of whirlwind, God does just that. In chapters 38 through 42, almost to the very end of the book, we see God's response to all of Job's questions, ponderings, to his complaints, his wondering. And what his response does is really reveal for Job and for us the complexity and the enormity of God's enterprise. God's design and purposes and the upholding of the world is far more complex for any one man to understand. And for these three men to wax philosophically about why God would be a certain way really is foolishness, God says. It is not for man to try to figure out God's plans. He could not understand them if he tried. The complexity and enormity of God's Design is revealed to us through his response. So look in verse 2 of chapter 38. God essentially says that mankind, let alone Job himself, is in no position to judge God. Chapter 38, verse 2. This is what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action, act like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. And then, man, God just burns Job. Just stings him. Verse 4, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. No, please, by all means. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or in what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together? And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it. And set bars and doors and said thus shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began. And caused the dawn to know its place. That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and be wicked and shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? 
Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And on and on he goes, excoriating Job for this sort of proud arrogance that is seeping into Job's own questioning. You and I may be tempted as well to wonder what God is doing behind all of this. That may be innocuous enough, but we must be careful as Job's heart begins to show us that a disdain and a distrust for God's purposes can easily creep into those questioning. We may begin to hear and believe the wisdom of the age. If all of Job's friends, if we didn't see, let's put it this way, if we didn't know and see that God had sent Satan and had a purpose for what was going on, you and I may be tempted to believe the friends that surely Job must have sinned, that he wasn't the righteous man we all thought he was. Job might have begun to believe this himself. And so God comes to him and rebukes him and says, you are in no position to judge me. For you have done nothing to standard the earth. You have done nothing to form its body. You have done nothing to make the sun rise and set. All of this has been done by me. No man is ever in a position to judge or to accuse God. Beyond this, we also learn from God's response that he isn't bound to govern the world by your and I's expectation of his leadership. Human expectations do not set the boundary for God's activities. What his friends thought, what Job himself thought, is that there are boundaries that we can set on God, and surely if he is this way, then we must expect certain outcome accordingly. But God, he says, is not bound to govern the world by human expectations. Look in chapter 41, verses 10 and 11. Really the second half of verse 10, he says, Who then is he who can stand before me? So he answers all this question, and Job is like, I, I, that's, that's, that's me, I, I, can't, I can't stand before you. Who is he that can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? This is the key. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. There is none who can give counsel to the Lord about how things ought to go. There is no man who can prescribe God judgments, who can oversee God's wisdom. God is not bound to govern the world by human expectations. Even when we believe those expectations are right and good, God is not bound by those expectations. Now we must say as an aside that God, of course, has attributes that he cannot contradict. If God is true, he cannot lie. God is never ignorant of any truth or fact because he is omnipresent, omniscient, and all-powerful, knowing. But... We do know that God is not bound by our own conceptions and expectations of how we must act. God says in Isaiah that your ways are not my ways. My ways are not yours. My ways are higher than yours. In other words, you cannot fathom how I operate. What is Job's response to all this? Rightly, it is confession and repentance there in chapter 42. He says... I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now he mourns not for the taking away of his possessions, but for 
his humility before God. He repents. What is God's then response? After he rebukes Job's friends, he speaks to Job. And we see finally here at the end, Job's restoration. It says in verse 10, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He was richer, more wealthier than ever before. Verse 16, And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So Job is restored. Now it's important to know Job isn't restored because he earned it that he passed the test, graduated, and now gets twice as much. But that God, who was sovereign in taking away, and therefore sovereign in giving, now mercifully gives what Job still did not deserve. And yet, he was pleased to deliver. This is sort of an overview. Again, I would encourage you to read through the book of Job this week. But there's two things to consider here. First, consider the assumption that his comforters made, his friends were making, about how they tried to understand why God was doing what they were doing. The assumption that they had in their mind was that God only acts according to His justice so that all of God's actions and the activities of the world around them ought to be easily and simply understood. That we can know what God is doing because God always acts according to His justice only. Over and over again, they affirmed rightly that God has sovereign power over all things. And they affirmed rightly they understood that God is just. And therefore, by God's own words and admission, He repays the wicked and blesses and prospers the righteous. But when that does not appear the way things really are, then they have to, by those own principles, well, God must be punishing you. You must not be righteous because God only rewards the righteous. God acts always according to His justice. And in fact, they did not understand mercy. They did not understand grace. And they did not understand fully the mind of God or the purposes of God. See, they rightly understood God's sovereignty and justice. In other words, we could say they had a fairly robust theology. But they falsely assumed God's fairness. And that God must always repay with good those who behave and with evil those who disobey. They falsely assumed in the theology of God's fairness. In other words, that there really was no undeserved blessing or undeserved suffering. That ultimately everyone gets what they deserve. If you're blessed, you must have done something to, de to deserve it. If you're cursed... You must have done something to deserve it. But this is a false assumption that is only half correct. But a half truth does not make a full truth. What we see in the book of Job is really the piece of wisdom that I want you to take away this morning. That God's justice is paired with God's mercy. What we have in effect is the combination of law and gospel. Yes, God is repaying those who are faithful and obedient, but He is also merciful to those who are disobedient. 
Yes, he answers according to his justice those who do wickedly, but he also patiently waits and oversees with long-suffering people's iniquities. At times the wicked will prosper and the righteous will, fl- will flounder. And at times the righteous will prosper and the wicked will flounder. God's justice is paired with mercy. And His purposes, they're rooted in grace. Consider again the heavenly meeting there in the beginning of the book. What reveals for us God's supernatural and His superhuman design, that is, over humans. It means that, in other words, humans are not the center of the universe, but that God is. And so that His mercy and His justice are free flowing in any direction he so wills, according to his own very nature. The wisdom of Job reveals for us a clearer picture that God acts always according to justice, but justice paired with mercy. And this was the lesson that Job needed to learn, that God could give and take away, and that it is not based on someone's performance, right behaving, or wrongdoing, but rather on God's secret, often undisclosed will. His purposes, however, are rooted always in grace. Let me give you a couple exhortations to consider from the book of Job as we conclude. Really, this is the thrust this morning. Those who trust God with patient endurance will receive the reward of the righteous, which is their vindication and restoration. Those who trust God with patient endurance, what Job was called to do, will receive the reward of the righteous, which is their vindication and restoration. Let's consider that in just two parts here. Trusting God with patience and endurance is what we are called to do when things go wrong. When we, like Job, begin to experience things we can't comprehend, even tragic calamities which will befall us from time to time, even the worst possible news right now that you could receive, you are called to trust God with patient endurance, which ultimately is to show for us not what is wrong or right about ourselves, but to reveal God's goodness and faithfulness in all things. See, listen, we do not need all the information to trust God. And this was the lesson Job needed to learn in his own suffering, that you don't need the information to trust God. You will not have every piece of the puzzle put together to answer every question you may have for why things are happening the way they are. When a tsunami hits the other side of the world and devastates hundreds, if not thousands, of people's lives, you may wonder why would that happen? You are not tasked with finding the answer. You do not need the information to understand why this has happened to you and not to somebody else. It does not mean that those questions are not natural or do not have good answers that we can begin to chew on and worship God through. But in order to trust God, we do not need more information. What we need is knowledge of God himself, not every answer to the questions of our circumstances. What does Proverbs 3 tell us? To lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the wisdom of the Lord. That is, you lean on God's wisdom, not on your own understanding. Your understanding can only see what is so far ahead of you. But God's wisdom goes much further beyond your ability to see, and you trust him because he is all-wise all-powerful. He is both just, which means the righteous will prevail, but also merciful, which means there is mercy and kindness to be had even in the midst of our difficulties. 
And we base our trust not in some obscure knowledge of the future, but in God himself. He's the basis for that trust. What he has revealed about himself, namely his goodness and his faithfulness, is the basis for your trust when things are difficult. When you receive the bad news that you've lost your job or did not get that promotion, when you receive the diagnosis that gives you a certain amount of time to live, when you hear of the lost uh, child in pregnancy, when you hear of the cancer, when you see on the news the next shooting, when you see in your own life the things that are befalling you over and over and over again, you must not question your circumstances, but trust God on the basis of His goodness and faithfulness. How counterintuitive is this to our own heart? Immediately, we begin to wonder why. Immediately, we seek answers. Immediately, we begin to ask questions that do not have easy answers. But it is the godly who ask, how can I worship God? How do I trust God in the midst of this? Friends, that's my prayer for you, that you would trust God in the midst of those hardships and circumstances, not on the basis of the answers you receive, but on the basis of God's character itself. In other words, you are to worship God for all the right reasons. And if you do this, your faith will endure. Remember Satan's accusation that Job worshipped God because God gave him things. And if God took those things away, he wouldn't worship God anymore. Well, this whole enterprise and endeavor shows that Job ultimately worshipped God for the right reasons, trusted for the right reasons, and because of this, his faith endured because it was held by God's promises. Satan even now accuses the brethren. You learn in Revelation that Satan stands before God and accuses the saints. So even now, God stands, or Satan stands before God, and he says, I know that those people... They worship you now on Sunday. But I guarantee if you just struck one or two of them with cancer or you took away this blessing in their life, you made it really difficult for them, gave them some hardship, they would stop worshiping you. They're going to stop going to church. They're going to stop reading their Bible. They're going to walk away. They'll even curse you. Satan stands and accuses you now. And unlike Job, he probably has a couple things he can point to in your life to say, look, he's already doing it. Or she. Friends, we must worship God for the right reasons, not our own performance, but trust in God for His faithfulness and goodness, knowing that Satan stands accusing us even now. Trust God not only for your purposes, but that He holds your faith that it might endure. But ultimately, we trust God with patience and endurance that we might receive the reward of the righteous, which may not be in this life, but the reward of the righteous is this. It is ultimately restoration. It is God's purpose and glory fully fulfilled in our life and in the life to come. And see, when we talk about restoration, restoration requires a restorer. It requires one who would come and answer all of those objections in himself. Notice what Job says. Just go to verse, verse yeah, chapter 19, perhaps the most well-known of all of Job's comments, one that lives well beyond his own days. Job 19, verses 25 to 27. Job says this as he really trusts God, fighting this doubt and uncertainty, choosing to trust God. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, 
whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Remember last, he, he, when he saw God, he said, not only did I hear it with my ears, but I finally saw God, and he fell before him and worshipped, repented, and confessed. This restoration requires a restorer, and Job puts his hope and trust in this moment, in this truth, that he has a redeemer who will come and stand before God on his behalf. That Job will stand before God because his redeemer stands before God. That Job has an advocate, not just in the Father, but in the Redeemer, who for all the sins and iniquities of his life will give an answer. That mercy does indeed flow along with justice. So we must say, in order to trust with patience endurance, we must say with Job that our Redeemer lives. That if we were to hope and trust faithfully, and we would be held and we would endure, we must say with Job that our Redeemer lives. And though he will stand in the final days. What does this restoration look like? It looks like resurrection. It looks like the consummation of all things. Job's ending is not always going to be our ending when suffering hits. His fortunes were restored. He lived long in the land. He was blessed and he had a full life. But the consequences of sin and God's providences may not be as kind to us as they are to Job. The diagnosis may not be miraculously healed. You may never conceive or give birth. Your friends may leave you. You may, in fact, lose and never gain what you treasure. And yet we can say, I know my Redeemer lives. And because He lives, there will be resurrection and restoration of all things. This, of course, points to Christ. Do you know this? That it is the Redeemer himself who lays down his own life and suffers all the suffering that an innocent person could ever receive. And yet he was resurrected from the dead. He receives what Job received, an infinite number, as he was resurrected from the grave. And in the power of his resurrection, you and I, friends, are able to trust and bank on that promise that though suffering happens to innocent people, that though bad things can happen to good people, though the innocent will suffer, though the faithful will fall, ultimately we will be held by God, that our faith will be in His hands, that because our Redeemer lives and was raised again, all our hope and our treasure lives and will be raised with Him. That's the hope of the Christian life. If you don't know that hope, friends, my goal for you this morning is to truly ponder in your heart that you would wonder and know if your Redeemer, Christ, lives for you. That if His suffering on the cross is for you, the suffering on a scale that we could not measure greater than Job's, and that He, upon going to the grave and rising again the third day, brings for you the hope of resurrection and restoration. That the things that go wrong in your life, the sins which you bring upon yourself, and the providences of God which are frowning before us, gives us great mercy and hope that all things will be restored because Christ himself lives. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian this morning, then you have this hope and the power to believe it. So walk in light of it. Trust that your Redeemer who lives was risen again and now sits. And though there is an accuser who stands before God and points out to him your flaws, there is also an advocate before the Father who intercedes for you now. And he who is in you 
is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus says that he has overcome the darkness, that he is the light. Friends, the living Redeemer, raised on the third, who sits at the Father's right hand, who intercedes now for you, sheds light on those who live in darkness so that we may, in hope, trust in the resurrection of our own bodies and the resurrection of our own souls to that great day where we will live in fullness. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for the mercy of Christ. We pray that our hearts would genuinely be stirred for the truth of the redeeming grace and power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Because he lives, we have hope. Because he lives and was resurrected, we can trust that whatever may happen to us, our own hopes, fortunes, and treasures would be resurrected. Perhaps not in this life, but our greatest treasure in God himself and in your Son would be ours to behold. We see that now, and we long for it with earnest desire and affection. We pray, God, as always, that you would do this and more in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxpg.com. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is tied.